Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Roger will be back on Monday. If you missed today's show, a couple of fascinating interviews. We spoke with Calgary's own Mike Civic, who after 29 years is hanging up the skates, retiring as an NHL linesman. We talked to him about his time in the league. We also spoke with reporter Tom Kircher, who's with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and covered the case that everybody's talking about, the Stephen Avery case that's at the center of the Netflix hit documentary, Making a Murderer. Be listening to us weekdays at 9.30 to 12.30 right here on Newstalk 770. Hi, welcome to this hour of the program. Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Roger Kincaid off for a few more days. He'll be back on Monday. Uh, we got some uh, time for your calls coming up later in the hour. Some open line time at uh, 974-8255. A lot of reactions still coming into this controversy over the shirts for sale at Amazon. We can talk about that. A lot of discussion this morning about Alberta politics, the shredding of documents. The uh, return to the NDP caucus of Deborah Drever, which apparently now seems to be confirmed. And I suppose the general overall direction of Alberta under this uh, NDP government, which uh, is certainly disconcerting in a lot of ways. But um, we can talk more about that. By the way, coming up after 12 o'clock, Tom Kircher is going to join us. He's a reporter with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Uh, He um, features briefly in the uh, Netflix documentary Making a Murderer. And uh, he covered the murder trial of Stephen Avery. Uh, so he knows it inside out, and I, I guess we're all now experts, having watched this uh, documentary, or we're certainly all talking like we are. But uh, we'll get some thoughts from him on why this case has become such a sensation, and what he thinks really happened. That's coming about at 12 o'clock. Uh, looking forward to this next conversation. Uh, I think what these people do is, is really quite fascinating. I think in a lot of ways it's a, a thankless job, uh, probably uh, a fun job. Uh, you know, there's not many spots, right? It's tough to get one of these jobs. And uh, you get the sense that those who do it really enjoy it, even though, uh, you know, there's there's uh, certainly some downsides to it, I would imagine. Uh, Calgary's own Michael Civic, after 29 years as an NHL linesman, has decided that maybe time to do something else. He's hanging up the skates and uh, reflecting on his time in the NHL and, uh, he joins us on the line here this morning. Michael, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, and I guess, you know, congratulations to you. I mean, it's, uh, you know, 29 years doing anything, uh, let alone <laughs> something as arduous as this. I mean, that's quite an accomplishment. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a long run, and it's been a good run, but, uh, you know, now it's time to give the body a rest, I think. Well, and, and is that why? Is that why you're, you're bowing out? It's just, it, it's taking its toll. Well, that and, you know, we've got some really good young guys coming into the uh, league now and they need to uh, get some experience like when I first uh, joined the staff. So, you know, 37 games into this season, that gives them, you know, I think there's three or four that they're looking at. So, you know, divide my games into the four guys and, you know, they'll have have enough experience that they'll be able to uh, hopefully jump in full time next season. But I guess if you wanted to keep going, if you were determined to, you know, fight through it and, and keep going, I mean, it sounded to me like you'd have to go through some surgery, right? You'd have a have a lot, to, quite a hill to climb, I guess. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, I've been working since last November without an ACL, so um, <laughs> that's uh, you know it's it, it, it's been fine this season. They uh, put me into a brace, and uh, you know I passed the medical and physical at training camp and zipping around on the ice. But uh, you know at, at some point I wasn't sure when it was going to uh, be an issue. So um, you know we started negotiating this with the league um, about a year ago. And uh, I wanted to finish the season, but, you know, when we sit down and go over things and how my body's starting to react to uh, pain and achiness and being jammed into airplanes that don't fit me very well, it's just, you know, it's just time. Well, yeah, that's an interesting point you make because people might not know, uh, you're you're a rather tall guy. You're, what, six foot nine? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. you know, even the even the business class seats on airplanes are not uh, are, are not too uh, friend, uh, friendly flying for me. But uh, it just uh, you know, a lot of the airlines now have gone to those smaller commuter airplanes. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> when I I usually come walking in last, so you know, when I come walking in, everybody's head turns to the front of the airplane, going like, "Oh, please, I hope he's not sitting beside me." <laughs> right. uh, so, do you have any idea on an, on an average year how many flights you would take? Um, well, I'm a super elite with Air Canada, so that's uh, that's over 100 flights just on Air Canada. And uh, I also fly on, uh, oh, well, I, I still call it Northwest Airlines, but it's Delta and American. So um, probably upwards of about 120 flights a year. Wow. Uh, how do they set the schedule, by the way, in determining, you know, who's going to do what games and where those games are going to be that you do? Is it all just kind of random, or how does it work? Well, the, the league has hired a, a guy. Um, he's been a longtime employee of the league, and he lives in uh, Fort Erie. And uh, he, his basic job is to do our travel, uh, our, our assignments, and, uh, and our expenses. So he just uh, sits down and does all 66 guys on staff that are full-time, and then he also does the minor league guys. So there's another probably 14 or 15 guys there that he does. Um, and we just get our schedule six weeks in advance. We get on the phone and call our travel <laughs> And then we start booking hotels and uh, contacting guys through email or texting and uh, coordinate some travel stuff, and away we go. So you kind of do a lot of that on your own. It's not like, you know, the teams and the players and they, you know, the players just show up and it's all taken care of for them. You, you guys handle a lot of this on, on your own. Oh, yeah, it's, all, it's, it's all on our own. So, um, <laughs> wow. We have, we have certain timelines we have to book our flights under so that, you know, we can get sometimes the best possible deals and stuff. But, you know, when there's travel issues like with weather or injuries and stuff like that, uh, you know, short notice, we're getting phone calls after the game or text messages. And, you know, it's like you think you have a day off, and then the next thing you know, you're jumping on a flight at 6 a.m. in the morning to get to another city to work for somebody that got hurt the night before. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so let's talk about the job of a linesman. Um, you know, obviously, as the name implies, uh, you know, you guys are calling the offsides and, and doing that sort of thing. But how does the job of a linesman differ from, from the job of a referee, and how is it similar? The biggest difference that you'll you'll find is, uh, you know, I mean, even when you start going through the rule book, linesmen's duties were pretty much black and white. It's either onside or offside. With the referee, it's more judgment-based because you could have a situation where, you know, a guy puts a stick on a guy, 
like it's going to be a hooking penalty. Could be a hooking penalty. Uh, he loses the puck, turns it over. The opposing team goes the other way. It's a hooking penalty. Conversely, same situation. He maintains the possession of the puck, or his team maintains possession of the puck. Might not be a penalty that's called. And you know that's the, and that's I guess the biggest argument when you know sportscasters and even the perception from fans is you know well that's a hooking penalty. How come he didn't call it? You know, there's other things that come into the calling of penalties in, in our business. But you kind of have to keep one eye on, on all of that. And are there times when the referees will, will come to the linesman and say, you know, did you guys see what happened or, or to clarify what, what might have happened? Oh, yeah. We're always talking to each other on the ice. Um, even sometimes on, a, on, you know, on this hybrid icing, you, you know, we'll, we'll be yeah. caught at the blue line, um, not flat-footed, but, the, you know, they're coming so fast and the puck is moving so fast that, you know, you have to, make, you have to be on the line to make the call there. And then race in and make a judgment whether it's going to be an icing play or you're going to wave it off. And you'll make your decision. And, you know, you might get one or two players come at you and go like, hey, come on. You know, like, I beat the guy. And you're like, no, you know, I'm going with what I saw. And you might slide by the referee that's down low and say, hey, you know, did I see that right? And they'll go, yeah, or you might want to talk to your partner. So then, you know, that's when we get into the conversation and we might end up center ice or your part of the, you know, your partner will say, no, you know, I, I think you did it right. So, you know, we'll take the face off down in the end zone. And the same with the referees. They'll come by us and say, I didn't get a good look at that. Was it a hook? Was it a hold? You know, was it interference? Um, you know, that's the constant communication. And that's something that's really evolved in our game now between the, between the officials. Because before when we hit the ice, it was, you know, one referee and two linesmen. And then when they went to the, you know, the two referee system, it was still, you know, two referees, two linesmen. Now we're, we're going out as a team. You know, we're four officials. We're, you know, we don't designate referees and linesmen anymore. We're, we're officials. By the way, what do you think of the hybrid icing as opposed to how it used to be or even the idea that, you know, the, the no touch icing that's used at, in, in other leagues or lower levels? What, what, what do you prefer? Um, you know, I was kind of one of those guys that was like, eh, I don't know how this thing is going to work. Um, having been through it and understanding the concept of what they want, I think it's perfect for our game. It's all about player safety. Um, if we can keep a guy from breaking his leg or getting drilled into the end boards and separating a shoulder or, you know, having a severe injury, I'm all for that. And it's, uh, it, I, I, my opinion is it's worked very well. Do you think overall the game is safer today? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a contact sport. Like any contact sport, you're always going to have injuries. Our injuries now uh, appear to be more catastrophic because of just the speed at which these guys zip around the ice now. It's, oh, yeah. it's amazing if you're at ice level how fast this game is. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, these are elite athletes, you know, in, in the prime of their physical condition in their 20s, and you guys got to keep up with them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as a senior official, you know, you're not as fast as you were when you were 24 or even in your 30s, so you rely on your instincts and uh, you're um, just kind of watching the game and anticipating, and you might anticipate a little bit faster because you want to still make sure that you, you get the best possible sideline to make whatever call you need to make. But further to that question of whether the game's safer, I mean, I guess the bigger question is, is the game better today? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, a fourth-line player now 
has to be able to skate, has to be, he has to be able to play the game, even though he might only play three, four, or five minutes. Mm-hmm. The coach has to have the uh, trust in that when he puts him on the ice for that amount of time, that he's still going to be able to play the game at a high level and be productive for your team. We certainly seem to see a lot fewer fights, and I know that's part of your job, I guess, and is to get in there and pull these these uh, big guys apart from each other. Did you find yourself doing less of that uh, toward you know the the latter stages of your career? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know what the stats are from the from the league office, but uh, fighting is way way down. I mean, when I first started, you know, we were breaking up. You know, if, if you were doing the Battle of Alberta, you could have six, oh. seven, eight, nine fights a night. Uh, now, if you have nine fights in two months, everybody's up in arms going, oh, the game is out of control. <laughs> <laughs> and and how, how dangerous can that get for you? Because you, you see some fights where, okay, you know, they're told to stop and they stop, but sometimes you're getting in there when fists are still flying. Yeah, we try to teach the young guys that, you know, if two guys are standing there and they're willing combatants and they're throwing punches, that, you know, they're mad at each other. They're not, they're not mad at you. So, you know, take your time, wait till they're done. And here again, we're talking to the players, you know, like when you're done, let us know. We'll come in. Um, as soon as we uh, feel that, you know, maybe somebody's in jeopardy, they're, they're not protecting themselves, and they're still throwing punches, that's when we'll throw ourselves in to try to protect the player. And even now, you know, with all this issues with concussions and stuff, as soon as the player's helmet comes off, our direction is to try to get in there as quick as possible to stop it so we don't have some guy fall backwards and crack his head on the ice. Uh, Mike, can I get you to hold the line for a second here? I just got to take a quick break. Absolutely. All right, perfect. We'll come back, continue our conversation. Uh, Michael Civic uh, reflecting on his uh, 29 years as an NHL linesman and uh, what a what a fascinating job it is. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. All right, we're back. Kincaid and Breckenridge. Rob Breckenridge with you talking about uh, the NHL and uh, life as an NHL linesman. Uh, Michael Civic did it for uh, many years and has decided to, to hang up the skates. Um, Michael, in terms of the relationship with the, the players or with the coaches, the same people who might be screaming at you over a call, is, is there much of a relationship off the ice? Do you roll in the same circles, and, and do you try to keep a distance? Um, I, I don't know if we roll in the same circles. I mean, when I first joined the staff, um, we used to always stay at the same hotels, um, eat in the same restaurants because you're in the same hotel, so you're all kind of in the same area. And, um, like when I went to LA, we would work a Tuesday and a Saturday. So you'd see the team on a Monday night and they would probably depart at like two or three o'clock in the afternoon because they'd have a morning skate in LA before they flew somewhere else. Cause we didn't have Anaheim. We didn't have San Jose. We didn't have Dallas. So you were kind of out on an Island out there. And then when the next team came in, they probably came in on a Wednesday night. So you'd see them all running around the hotel. Um, you'd have conversations with uh, players that you knew from junior hockey. Like I know, remember when uh, I was in Vancouver, uh, I'd see Trevor Linden all the time. So I'd sit there and, and talk to him about you know our days in the Western League and Medicine Hat and working the finals and stuff like this. And through Trevor, more of the veteran players would come over, introduce themselves, and you'd talk and you'd, you'd strike up you know just kind of not a friendship, but uh, a kinship. And then when you saw them on the ice. It was like, okay, I have a job to do. You have a job to do. At some point in time, there's going to be conflict. But because of the relationship away from the rink, um, you started to gain more respect because they, they saw you as a, as, as a person and not as a, a, a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the same with the coaches. I mean, we had, uh, I had Pat Quinn and 
I, you know, was very intimidated by Pat my my first year because he was just a big, gruff Irishman, always <laughs> and um, I was like, wow, you know, this guy is just like he, he's nonstop. But talking to the veteran guys, they said hey, he's the same with everybody. So it's not because you're a rookie; it's not it's not anything else. He's just like that. So knowing that, I started to build a relationship with Pat just on interactions on offsides and talking to him at the bench and listening to him yell and, and all this kind of stuff. And it actually became quite fun because he'd sit there and he'd try to get you going, and you go like, "Oh, come on, Pat, seriously." This isn't Hudson's Bay's rules because, I mean, there's nothing going on out here. So he kind of giggle and just carry on and do his thing. Um, being as long in the business as I've been, uh, you know, coaches come and go. Uh, the, the new coaches coming in, they talk to their uh, older players and say, you know, what's this guy like? I, I mean, they judge you on your body of work on the ice, but a lot of times they want to know what kind of person you are as well. I had John Cooper say some very nice things to me the other night, and I've only been on the ice with John for, I don't know, maybe three years. I think he's been behind the bench. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that that was nice. And I've had general managers who I might have said hello in a press room for 15 seconds, come down to the room and have a 15, 20-minute conversation after, after a game in the last month and a half that I've worked because that was the last time I was going to see their team, and they just wanted to talk to me. So mm-hmm. it was... Uh, you know, we, we have the relationships, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're all about wins and losses, and we're all about safe and fair. Well, you know, that's the funny thing about what you guys do is is it, that it seems as though it's thankless. If, if it's the perception that you did a bad job, you can have people screaming at you and booing you, and you're going to hear about it. If you do a good job, it's like nobody notices, right? Well, you know, when we end up starting a game, we know by the end of it, 50% of the people and the players are going to be happy with us. 50% of the people and the other team are not going to be happy with us. So as long as we hit the ice, we work hard, we do our job, we make it safe, we make it fair, we just leave the ice and we go, okay, we did our job. Yeah. So you don't necessarily need the the you know the players or the coaches thanking you or telling you you did a good job to know you did a good job. No, no. And I mean, this last month and a, and a half um i've been working with uh, a really good group of guys that have gone to certain veteran players that uh, they know i've been on the ice with for a long time and gone over and just said to them hey you know what this is the last time you're going to see mike and they come over and they're going like well, what's going on like well, why are you leaving you know yeah. we like you out here and it's you know we just go through and i explain the situation and you know we ex- exchange some pleasantries and then you know they, they leave the ice to go to the bus and whatever, and I'll be leaving the dressing room, and we have a nice, you know, two, three, four-minute chat about, you know, our time in the league together, and it's been, it's been very eye-opening from my perspective because I, I, I didn't realize that that many players actually recognized or knew who I was, uh, firstly, and secondly, it's just, it's completely humbling that all these people want to thank me for the job that I did and just, you know, doing what I do. Well, it's pretty neat to see, and it must have been pretty amazing for you to, you know, for that last game to to do that opening face-off and and everything. It was, what was that like for you? Well, I was, uh, you know, we did our thing at center ice with uh, our touch the chest and our, our fist pumps, and in recognition of one of our linesmen that uh, passed away in a tragic motorcycle accident uh, during the first lockout. Uh, that's why we do that, and it's also uh, okay, guys. This is. You know, this is the switch that turns the light on for us to get ready to go to work. And 
they're like, okay, you're dropping the puck for the face. I'm like, hey, I don't want any attention here. I said, we're not changing anything on how we start the game. They're like, no, 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 you're doing the face. I was like, I started arguing with them at center. I said, well, like, hey, I'm the senior guy. I'm telling you, no, I'm not dropping the puck. <laughs> Brian Murphy has me the puck. Says you're dropping the puck. Get out of here. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, that's quite something. Um, for for people coming up, right, and and you know, it's probably different when when you were an up and coming linesman, just the. You know the way people deal with with officials, and you know the, the respect coaches and players show. But even today, I and I know it, it can be tough on you know teenagers who don't want to pick this up as kind of a part time job and learn the craft and, and stick with it. But having that first experience of a coach yell at you or a parent yell at you, it it can be tough to deal with. What's the advice you give to to young officials who want to do this and, and want to stick it out? You know the biggest piece of advice I can give if Somebody out there that's uh, officiating minor hockey, whether you're, you know, want to get into it on the linesman side or the referee's side, is you're always going to have somebody that's not going to be very happy with you. And I, I know I've been around rinks here in Calgary, and, you know, some of the parents are out of control, and even some of the coaches are out of control. And, you know, Hockey Canada's done a great job with, uh, you know, recognizing, you know, we have to take that kind of stuff put in sport because they see the. Uh, attrition rates on the officiating side is, is quite quite high. Just do what you have to do. Uh, go out and officiate the game the way you see it. React to what you see. People are going to yell whether you're doing a good job or a bad job. It's just something, I don't want to say it's part of our game because it shouldn't be part of our game, but when, I, when you get into competition, it's always, you know, the emotions get out of control, and some people can yeah. control their emotions and some can't. You just need to go out, do it, do your job, and try to put all that other stuff uh, out of your mind. I know it's very, very difficult because I've been in some buildings where I've had to actually move from where I was sitting or standing to a completely different part of the arena because uh, the stuff that was being said was just completely inappropriate. But I was just like, you know what? I I don't want to get into an argument here. This isn't my this isn't my place to be uh, arguing with fans. So I just you know we'll go down to the room and say, listen, you know what, you did a good job. Um, give some advice on maybe how they can tweak things to make their game better. But at the end of the day, just go out, work hard. If it's a, if you're passionate about it, that other stuff kind of just flows off off your back like uh, water off a duck. All right. So what now? What now for you? <laughs> have you have you planned that out yet? Uh, no, actually, I've got to sit down with the Calgary Flames orthopedic surgeon at some point here in the future and get a timeline on my surgery. Um, I've been working without an ACL, so um, when I talked to him in December, uh, he kind of explained to me that it's a seven- to nine-month uh, recovery after surgery. So wow. uh, if we're going to do it right away, then, you know, it kind of will delay some things that, uh, you know, I, I want to do, say, perhaps, you know, looking for a job or something like this. If, it, if we're going to put it off for a while, then I can start, you know, looking around and see if there's anything out there that uh, interests me and looking at it doing, you know, to start with. And then hopefully maybe if things go well and I like it and whoever employs me likes it, then, you know, they'll say, you know, you can do the seven to nine months, you know, at home or, you know, the first two months because it basically is just laying on the couch and, and uh, not moving. So, you know, that's, Everything's up in the air right now, just waiting to get a timeline on, on surgery. 
Well, the best with whatever comes next for you, uh, Mike. And, uh, again, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. It's been a great conversation. Well, thanks, Rob. I appreciate you uh, reaching out and having me on your program. All right. Take care. Thanks yeah, again. Thanks. All right. Welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770, our final segment here today. Daniel Smith will be in after 1230. Um, a few weeks ago, I, I started seeing a lot of people on Facebook and Twitter saying, oh, my gosh, have you watched this show on Netflix, Making a Murderer? I can't believe it. You're going to love this. Uh, and they were talking about the case and debating it. So I didn't really know a lot going in. But I thought, well, what the heck? I, I, sounds like something I might enjoy. And I got hooked. It's a 10-part documentary on Netflix. I got about four episodes in. I kept bugging my wife, you got to watch this. So she said, well, you've already watched four episodes. I said, look, I'll watch those four again, and then we'll, we'll watch the show. So got her hooked on it. Uh, but she almost threw in the towel on it because she just got so infuriated watching the, the episodes. And it's it's that kind of a show. Essentially, it's the case of a, of a Wisconsin man by the name of Stephen Avery. The short version is, in 1985, Stephen Avery was accused of, convicted of, a pretty brutal rape and assault. Now, 18 years later, he was finally released from prison after DNA evidence exonerated him. But there are a lot of specifics in that case, in terms of how the authorities handled it, how the justice system handled it. And he never should have been locked up in the first place, certainly should have been freed long before. But then comes the murder. About two years after, Stephen Avery's release from prison, exonerated. He's accused of murder. And, spoiler alert, he's convicted of murder. And as you watch the show and all the twists and turns in this case and the questionable evidence and the questionable conduct of the police, individuals who might have been held accountable in that lawsuit he filed regarding the original wrongful conviction, you just wonder. You wonder whether he did it. You wonder about whether justice is being done here. And yeah, it's a story about the U.S. justice system or the Wisconsin justice system, but uh, certainly we've seen cases like that here in Canada. Well, someone who's covered this case for a long time, covered the trial, and actually makes an appearance in Making a Murder, is on the line with us. Tom Kircher is a reporter with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, also with PolitiFact Wisconsin. Tom, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, you bet, Rob. I guess you've known for years that uh, you had this, this fascinating uh, story right in your backyard there. What do you make of the fact that now the, the world's taken notice of it? Yeah, before I answer, I just want to... Uh compliment you on your description that the summary you gave is very good there's a lot of details over many years and, and some of those are being lost as people uh, watch the series or read about the case on the internet so yeah. um, i give you credit for that Thanks. uh you know the the i don't think anyone including the filmmakers themselves ever expected the netflix series to take off like it did you know they were working at that series for 10 years and you know every once in a while i would hear from them that they had you know attended a deal perhaps with a cable network something like that but but just imagine if that if that had happened if that series or or a portion of it had been uh, aired on cable maybe a year or two after the murder when people were still sort of sick of the details it wouldn't have had much impact at all so the fact that you know they had a hard time selling it uh, actually worked in their benefit to a great degree because now it's uh, binge watchable. Uh, 
yeah. on Netflix, and the timing of it over the holidays seemed to be, uh, in retrospect, you know, pretty smart. Oh, yeah, pretty brilliant, because, yeah, I'd be going to, to events, and people would be there, and it'd just be mm-hmm. the kind of thing people would just strike up a conversation about, and... Yeah, absolutely. And people had the time to watch it over the holidays. Now, interestingly, now you obviously must have noticed those filmmakers at the time, right? Because they just kind of came, they showed up to cover this, and the family let them in, and they had all this access. Did did you see them around all the time when you were there covering the trial? I did, you know, and that's one of the things to their credit is that they were tireless and they were everywhere. I shouldn't say everywhere, but they, you know, at all the major uh, news conferences court appearances, you name it, interviews. Um, and, you know, and as you, I think, touched on, uh, it became, uh, the murder case became a national story when, when Avery was arrested. You know, at, at one point back in 2003, after he got out of prison for the wrongful conviction, you know, he was kind of the face of the innocence movement in America at that mm-hmm. point. You know, uh, a guy had spent 18 years behind bars for something he didn't do. So, uh, again, as you noted, two years later, I mean, he's charged with murder, and that was the first innocence predicate case in America where that had happened. Uh, someone who was exonerated was then charged with murder. So uh made national news, and your time wrote a story about it shortly after he was arrested in the murder. The filmmakers were living in New York. They read about it, jumped in a car, and came to Wisconsin. And you know, I was interviewed by them. I, mean, I was briefly in the in the film. Yeah. And as I said, they were uh, on the scene, so to speak, uh, pretty much all the time. So you you've you've watched the documentary, I assume. I did, and I resisted it. I uh, really? have been urging me to watch it, and you know, raving about it. And honestly, after spending so many years reporting on the case, just didn't have the stomach for it. You know. They'd, Details of the murder, Grizzly, and, and um, um, you know, so I wrote about his exoneration. I wrote about his arrest. I wrote about the murder. I wrote about a you know six week trial, and I just thought, you know, to to go through ten hours of it, knowing it's going to be upsetting, to sort of relive some of that. I just thought I don't want to spend ten hours doing that. But um, but fortunately, uh, my editors here at the Milwaukee Journal sent no, on on. Uh, Monday said, look, we want you to watch it and write an analysis of it. And that put me in a different mindset. You know, it was back in work mode, and I was doing it on work time and, you know, looking to do a story and spent all day Monday and Tuesday of this week uh, watching the series and, and live tweeting about it, which got a, a ton of reaction. Yeah, it did. And um, just now I'm um, today finishing up that analysis story that uh, we hope to publish in the next couple of days. All right. Well, well, to that then. I mean, it's it's clearly sympathetic to to Stephen Avery, and and obviously you you know you see uh, how his family's reacting, all those conversations they're having about everything. It, it's certainly framed that way. But do you, do you think it's it's an objective look at what happened? I think what people need to remember as they're watching the series is that you know as I mentioned, these people were the filmmakers were tremendously thorough, certainly talented. You know, really pretty tireless. Um, but they really were kind of embedded with uh, Stephen Avery's family and Stephen Avery's lawyers. So, you know, that needs to be something people keep top of mind as they're watching and evaluating the series. Yeah, you know, it doesn't take away from any of the questions that the series raises about how the murder investigation was handled. But again, if you're trying to evaluate the series, you need to remember 
it came from uh, that one point of view. Well, that's the thing, and I, I think you know I've had that conversation with people when when people are looking at it and say, did he do it or didn't? Did he not do it? I don't know that that's the conversation that should happen. It's more a conversation about the process and how this was all handled and, and the way people are put on trial and the way evidence is collected against people. To me, that that's what it's more about. That's what the makers have said as well. I, they have said, look, we didn't come here to try and determine whether Stephen Avery killed this woman or not. We came here to examine how the justice system works. And, and you know, it was a very compelling case to examine. There's a guy who wrongly spent 18 years in prison, and now he's being charged with murder. Um, the system wronged him, so to speak, the first time. What was going to happen the second time? That was that was their approach to try to look at it at a little broader point of view. I'm curious, though, in his case. Because the documentary doesn't spend a lot of time on the on the fallout of it all, because it, it does talk about that that portion before the murder charge and after he's released, where you know the attorney general launches this investigation and there, there's a real effort to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again, and that all seemed to kind of go away once everyone decided that Stephen Avery was was a terrible person. So did anything really change? Was there any really ever the the, the kind of fallout from from that wrongful conviction? or even from some of the revelations about how the murder investigation was handled, did anything really change? Uh, the first part of your question, in, in terms of what happened after Avery was exonerated of that sexual assault back in 85, uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly was the first marker here in Wisconsin of uh, you know, the Innocence Project movement, and and as I said, he was really the face of it, and, you know, a tremendous amount of, Sympathy, even though you know he did have some prior criminal convictions, certainly nothing on the level of a sexual assault. So there was certainly a, a sympathy for him. And state lawmakers in Wisconsin responded by uh, re-examining the, the state law and changing it so that people who are wrongly convicted will be eligible for more money, more compensation from the states. I think there's a raising awareness and a change in law. Those were two of the things. That happened after his exoneration. In terms of the trial, you know, um, uh, there was not, by any means, an outcry um, about Avery's guilt in the murder. When the verdict came out, there was absolutely nothing like the reaction there is now. Mm -hmm. Not to say there weren't people who doubted the conviction, you know, had questions about the investigation, but there was certainly no outpouring and, and no, that I'm aware of, you know, any sort of review of the system, but, but that's where we are now. You know, I think on two levels, um, if Avery is ever to have another day in court, uh, it would have to be from new evidence, new information, and, you know, yeah. if that's ever going to come out, you would think it would be now after all the attention Netflix series has gotten. In terms of the larger system, you know, what the Netflix series does, I think, is raise people's awareness, get think a little bit critically about it, how representative this one case is of an entire system, you know, I guess people have to make their own judgment about that. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting because there there have been a lot of stories out this week, and, you know, some of the people who were involved in the prosecution have been putting out that, look, there's other evidence that we had against this guy that you don't hear about in the documentary. And the filmmakers say, well, look, we, we took the strongest points of what the prosecutors were, were arguing in court and, and certainly the... The central points of their case were presented in the documentary. How much of a how much of the story are people getting? 
Well, maybe the way to answer that is you know, what what evidence was there at the time, and you know, some of it's covered by the phone and some isn't. But I think again, evaluating it, particularly you know, for most viewers, this is their first exposure to the case. Unless you're from Wisconsin, you probably don't know anything about Stephen Avery or the murder. So, the most viewers are coming at this fresh, and their only impression, their only knowledge of the case is is the film. So. You know, what I'm trying to do in this story that we plan to publish in the next couple of days is to look not only at what Netflix highlighted, the series highlighted, and what was at trial. And while there were certainly plenty of questions raised about who was involved in the murder investigation and what their activities were, you know, there was a lot of DNA evidence, ironically, against Avery. You know, DNA uh, advancements were what freed him from prison the first time. Uh, so it's obviously powerful yeah. stuff. And it was also powerful in the murder trial. You know, there was his DNA found inside the murder victim's car and on the car. His DNA found on her car key, which was found in his bedroom. Uh, her DNA on remains that were found burned outside of Avery's home. And her DNA on a bullet fragment that was found in Avery's garage. So... You know, there's certainly reasons that the jury, you know, whether they made the right call or not, there's certainly reasons why the jury came with guilty verdict of all the, the DNA evidence. Well, you know, I mean, the jury heard all of it, and there's now apparently another juror who's come forward, the filmmakers say, and, and says that there was some horse trading going on and that he or she would have voted to, to acquit Avery on the murder charge. He was acquitted of the, the charge of... Um, regarding the the remains and and the treatment of the human body part of it. But I don't know. I mean, I I think the case comes down to if people believe that the police might have been capable of planting evidence, then kind of all bets are off. And if the DNA is legitimate, that evidence is legitimate, then maybe it is a slam dunk. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Obviously, I wasn't on the jury, and so I don't know, you know what they discussed or how easy it was for them to to reach a verdict. But um, you know, there's there's good questions to raise, and I think in retrospect, I wish we had done more reporting at the time about the involvement of the local sheriff's department. You know, when when the murder occurred, Stephen Avery had filed a thirty-six million dollar lawsuit against the local county, Manitowoc County, for his wrongful conviction. So, when the murder occurred in Manitowoc County, there was a decision very quickly that Manitowoc should not investigate this because they wanted to avoid a conflict of interest. And that seemed to be, to make sense. And then lo and behold, as the investigation of the murder unfolds, Manitowoc Sheriff's deputies are right there in the thick of it. And so, you know, that from the start, uh, in terms of the film, raises a lot of questions of why are these guys even on the property doing switches? And then, again, lo and behold, when the key the murder victim's car is found in Avery's trailer, for example. It was a Manitowoc deputy who found it on someone else, and it was on, I believe, the seventh time that they searched the trailer. So there's there's certainly criticism to be made about why the local sheriff's department was involved when it appeared they had been told not to. Yeah, and I guess going forward, I mean, we haven't really talked much about Brendan Dassey, and he's another part of this story. I know he's still mm-hmm. fighting for for a new trial. Stephen Avery's fighting for a new trial, and it seems like a long shot. But as you say, this the story is probably not over yet. 
I would say that's right. You know, with all the attention being paid, if there's something new going to be discovered or somebody with information is going to come forward after all this time, you know, compelling information, that would be the only way everybody would you know, have a chance at trying to sort of re-argue his case. Brenda Dassey might be another story. Uh, you know, he's the, he was at the time 16-year-old nephew of Stephen Avery. He was on a trial separately after Avery and was also convicted of the murder. Again, one of the regrets I have looking back is that I, you know, I spent all that time covering the Avery case, but didn't cover the Dassey trial. And the, you know, in retrospect, I wish I had. And, you know, the film raises maybe the most troubling questions are with regard to Dassey, a 16-year-old who was learning disabled and represented initially by an attorney who appeared to make some egregious mistakes, and so. You know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know all the legal angles, and he certainly had some appeals already. But, you know, if there is uh, uh, to be another reexamination of Dassey's case or a reexamination of how juvenile suspects are interrogated, you know, I think there's certainly some strong possibility for that. And let me just ask you in closing, Tom, and maybe avoid reaching these conclusions, but I'll, I'll ask it as a yes or no question. Do you have an opinion on whether Stephen Avery is guilty. I don't. Yeah, fair enough. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, people can go to jsonline.com to read more of your coverage. And as you say, you got a new piece coming out on all of this. That is the website of the Milwaukee uh, Journal Sentinel. Tom, really appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks so much for this. Thanks for your interest. All right, take care. Tom Kircher is uh, a reporter with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He's also with PolitiFact Wisconsin. jsonline.com, that's the Journal Sentinel's website. Obviously, you can find a lot of background on this case there, but as Tom said, he's, he's working on uh, a piece that, that he's going to put up, an analysis of this show, which is a little weird because he appears bl- briefly in it, and it's a case he, he covered extensively at the time. we got to take a break here, though. We'll come back. Some final thoughts on this. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.